You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLaghi. Is medical research being given enough support in the U.S. to maintain scientific leadership? What's the outlook for a young physician scientist considering a career in research? Joining us to discuss the plight of the investigators, Dr. Mark Donowitz, LaBeouf Professor of Medicine and Director for the Center for Epithelial Disorders, at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Donowitz is also past president of the American Gastrological Association. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Mark. First of all, I know that for a lot of people, the big apple for research funding is the NIH. And I know that drives a lot of research in the U.S. What's happened to that funding over the past few years? Has it gone up, gone down, stayed the same? The funding has been, from a dollar point of view, slightly decreased the first time in history that this ever has occurred. But much more importantly is that inflation hasn't stopped, even though the Bush administration has stopped increasing the dollars flowing. So overall, the total dollars from a real dollar perspective in the last four or five years is probably 15% lower than it was prior to that. You know, with the reduction in funding... It sounds to me like things end up being much more competitive or meaning that your chances of getting funded are decreased. Would that be correct? It's basically correct. The NIH has worked very hard under Elias Zerhouni to cushion the investigators from having a, a disaster, as you might have predicted would have occurred. In fact, this downturn has not been quite as severe as the downturn in the early 90s, where every investigator was basically looking around for another career. Here, a lot of the senior people have been cut back, but they at least have been able to maintain their laboratories. But it's not been a good show out there. Mark, I hear the buzzword translational research, meaning taking what is in science and bringing it to the patient. What's our biggest needs right now for bringing science to the patient? Where's our deficits? Science is at an exciting time. We're really in what's called the post-genomic area where the proteins and the genes have been in the human have been identified and we're now in a position at trying to understand the function of a lot of the proteins and how they become abnormal in disease. So the opportunities are spectacular for moving knowledge forward and for applying that to patients and their diseases. There's a lot to learn at a basic science level. Uh, most people are guessing that we probably know you know 10%, 15% of what we're eventually going to know and when it's all worked out if it ever occurs. So there's tremendous discovery of basic biologic processes going on. We're in nowhere should we assume that we've We've got all the knowledge. However, we are at a stage where we can really apply a lot of what we've learned to normal physiology, to how normal people work, and how they don't work so well in disease. The opportunities are really fantastic. Mark, I remember when I was in my training, I was surrounded by some pretty good people who were physician scientists. They were MDs or perhaps MD-PhDs. 
Today, do you see less physician scientists actually going off into research? Well, the numbers are pretty clear that the total number of the physician scientists probably has not changed for the last 20 years, maybe even longer. However, the whole population is getting a lot larger, and the number of people in science have continued to increase kind of linearly, so that the percentage of investigators who are physicians, so-called physician scientists, is getting smaller and smaller and continues to decline. You know, once you go out as a physician or a physician scientist into research, you try to build your career and frankly, a lot of that depends on your mentor and your ability to get funding and other things. So is there a dropout rate, meaning do we see a pretty steep drop-off of people who start off as physician scientists and then leave? I think you've put your finger on what's of, of greatest concern to most of the leaders in gastroenterology who, who are looking around to see what the future investigator is going to look like. The number of people starting out is still a significant number. We think that a lot of our very best trainees are still choosing this career, maybe not as high a percentage and maybe not as many of the best and brightest as there was, say, 20 years ago, but there's still a significant number of really brilliant young physician scientists that are initiating careers in research. Of great concern, and probably the greatest concern, is the very, very high dropout rate. When we've analyzed this, we've tried to figure out how many people who start this career will stay in it long term. And our analysis suggests that if you're in long enough to get your second R01 grant, our R grants are the investigator-initiated studies, it suggests that you've committed so much of your effort and that you you will see this as a long-term career. This probably happens in the mid to early 50s. However, if you don't get that second R01, then most people are going to decide that it's just not worth the sacrifice of effort and sacrifice and pay that most people take to pursue an academic career and drop out. So when we've analyzed what the numbers are, it seems almost incomprehensible, but the numbers suggest that something in the 80-90% of people who start these careers drop out by the time they're in their early to mid-50s. That's unbelievable. I mean, I know that there are lucrative careers, say, in clinical practice, private practice, or even in academics. Do you think that the problem is there's some sort of flawed business plan for physician scientists? I mean, we haven't done this right, at least from a monetary standpoint? With a number that large, there's not going to be one answer. Some people are going to decide that they really did have reassessed their sacrifices that they and their family are making because they're not making as much as another person who is doing practice, and those people will drop out. Our analysis suggested that the physician scientist who decides that they're not making a sufficient salary is usually preventive. They, these are people who usually decide early on, as they and their family discuss the opportunities, that they're not going to go into research. They decide that the amount of money is not enough, and they will take an alternate route, which, of course, we're all fortunate of being able to have a wonderful career doing patient care and make a, a very good living. But I do not believe that the 
dropout that we just discussed comes from people saying, hey, all of a sudden in the middle of their career, hey, I've decided I'm not making enough. I don't think that that is a late life decision. Of course, some people it will be the answer. Some illness will happen, the kids have to go to college, and some recognition that they didn't really concern themselves with earlier. So some people will drop out for that reason. But I believe that the major reason that people drop out has to do with the structure of academic investigative careers. And it seems to a group of us who have been thinking about this that all of us who have laboratory careers essentially are running small businesses. You have to rent space, which is you pay it to the dean in the form of indirect costs. And if you don't think it's rent, try dealing with the dean when you're not able to pay that. We have to hire employees, our postdoctoral fellows and our technicians. We have to train them. We have to figure out how to pay their life insurance, their disability. We have to worry about their future career planning by sending them off to different meetings and working with them as mentors. We have to purchase equipment and then have to discount it and have to worry about service contracts. All of these things are the kind of kind of charges that a small business has. Now, the bills for these things come in every month, of course, in a very linear, perhaps progressive fashion. However, our ability to pay these bills comes in a more pulsatile way when we get funding so that we're always kind of in danger of if we lose or miss a grant cycle or miss getting our grants refunded or funded, we are in danger of going bankrupt. And the process of getting funding from the NIH is really a repetitive process. You put it in, you get critique, you put your grant back, and if your grants are good, you can respond to the critique and get funding eventually. But the problem is there are often gaps in funding where you're in great danger of going bankrupt. And that's the hardest part, I guess, for a small business, but also for an investigator, where what you lose is your postdoctoral fellows and your technicians, which is the lifeblood of what you have built up. So it seems to this group of us that it's a flawed business plan and the lack of security, always being worried about going bankrupt, that is the biggest deterrent for people for continuing in a research career. Once you go bankrupt and have to let people go, most people are too discouraged to keep uh, going on and and giving the sacrifices that you have to give at that point. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge, and joining me to discuss the plight of the investigators, Dr. Mark Donowitz, LaBeouf Professor of Medicine and Director for the Center for Epithelial Disorders at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Donowitz is also past president of the American Gastroenterological Association. Mark, I've heard about two models that may be a little bit different for institutions investing in physician scientists to do research, I guess in the face of decreasing NIH funding, and they I go by the name of the Guppy model or the Stanford model. Do you have knowledge of these, and can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Yeah, the different medical centers have chosen to develop investigators in, in different ways, and I believe that as we talk about these, that it'll become clear that the two models lead to different retention rate of young investigators. Most of the 
big centers invest when they hire their new investigators, the so-called startup packages. And as you try to hire a young scientist, you assess what their likelihood of success is, and you provide them some money to start them off, which includes money to hire some postdocs and to let them get started while they apply for grants. This money is used partially for their salary, partially for their employees, partially for supplies, and perhaps uh, some renovations of their laboratory. Now, most institutions believe that that is pretty much their obligation. Once a person has been brought in and started, they generally don't feel that they have to provide further support. And it's up to the young investigator to make their way either through the NIH or through alternative funding mechanisms, different societies, etc., and associations which can provide some funding. That is a very difficult model to survive in because, as we discussed, the NIH has its ups and downs. The second model is used by just a few schools which have have decided that they're going to hire less faculty, but that they will continue monitoring the progress of these faculty members so that if they get into trouble, they will decide if the person really is still interested in research, devoting themselves to it, if they have lots of good ideas, and if they have the potential for future success, and will invest further in a certain number of these. The difference is that the dropout probably is going to be less when the institution continues supporting the investigators during difficult times than if they don't support them. I'd like to thank my guest from John Hopkins University School of Medicine, Dr. Mark Donowitz. Dr. Donowitz, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.